podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Wagon Wheel. I'm Jared Kimber here for another podcast. Remember, please, if you want to help support the show, the best place to go is to YouTube, to the uh, Jared Kimber podcast channel, and you can support us directly there just by subscribing or pressing the bell icon or liking or anything like that. And if you're in the YouTube live at any stage, comments, likes, subscribing, all those things all help us massively. So thank you to everyone who's done that, but also thank you to everyone who supported us on Patreon. And those are the people that get to ask the first questions here on Wagon Wheel. Uh, if you want to, if you are in YouTube and you want to ask a question, uh, the best way to uh, go about that is to go to uh, the super chats and, and do that. But I'm, I might go through any at the end as well. Let's have a look what we have here. Josh says, uh, "Could your hometown eleven Melbourne beat my hometown eleven of Christchurch? Fleming, Graham Dowling, Astle, Latham, Nichols, McMillan, Stokes, Hadley, Henry, Bond, Martin." Corey Anderson at top, Matt. Uh, I have no idea if Melbourne could go through. It would take me too long. But I could tell you one thing, Josh. Uh, that's a very nice li- little lineup. Uh, go and have a look at what Barbados can do, is, is my answer for all of those. Barbados is almost always the answer to this. Uh, Sydney's is pretty spectacular as well. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the others. Mumbai got fast bowling. Um, but yeah, there's some good ones out there when, when you do go through it. But yeah, Christchurch per person seems quite decent off the top of my head a uh, little bit thin once you get to the 12th perhaps uh but uh, a lot of talent in there as well uh swami nathan says uh, in an espn interview uh postacoglu said nay to mancad which is as valid as the stumping at best though uh so did a bunch of other Famous Aussies, including former cricketers. Hypocrisy much. Are you saying that sport fans are uh, hypocrites? I mean, uh, uh, what a way to learn it 43 years into my life. Shocked. I'm shocked, sir. Um, as a general rule, uh, you know, I don't care what football <laughs> coaches, manager, whatever he is. Was he Spurs now? I don't know. I remember him being around in Australia years ago when I was there. Um yeah, I mean, but but yeah, if your bigger point is that Mancat is not okay and this is uh, okay, then yeah, your point is very, very valid. I'm very clear with my stance on this. If you don't want to be run out, if you don't want to be stumped, don't leave the crease when you don't need to. I would have thought that's a fairly obvious thing to do, whether it's a Mancat, whether it's this, whether it's any of those sorts of situations. I think batters do a lot of dopey things and they should be penalized for them. But yeah. Uh, the hypocrisy, I mean, welcome to sports, right? One day, everyone in Australia was really upset about Mitchell Stark when he quite clearly ran the ball on the ground. The next day, England were really upset that Bairstow left his crease and they took the bails off. I mean, w- what are we even doing here? <laughs> Is it legal, a legal non-dismissal or legal dismissal? Uh, Swami Nathan says... Uh, do you think allowing associate nations to play domestic uh, leagues like Shield, Ranji, and County would let them develop? Look, we get I get asked this one all the time. It's a very, very common question. Yeah, of course they would develop better. Um, but that's not why those leagues exist in the first place. Who's going to pay for those leagues to do that? Um, we've already seen problems before with Ireland and Scotland and the Netherlands being involved with the English system. It didn't go quite as well. Obviously, Namibia and Zimbabwe are two perfect examples of this happening well. Um Bangladesh is probably not as good an example, I suppose, if you think that they started as part of Pakistan uh, or is as East Pakistan, um, back when Pakistan was a test-playing nation. Um, Pakistan's probably a good, another good example of it as well, uh, of course. So, yes, it would happen, but no one's going to pay for it. Like, it's never going to, it's never, sorry, it would work, I should say, but it's never going to happen. Um, it's just not the way that the sport is going, uh, if we're being honest, as much as anything. Roger says, has the spirit of the game ever been used by any team other than England to allow a batter to continue batting after being declared out according to the laws of the game? Yeah, yeah. No, of course. Um, I think Vittori did it on when McCullum uh, basically did exactly what Alex Carey did. Uh, I'm trying to think of some others. We've had you know situations where batters and fielders have coll- collided and people have pulled people back. I know there's been handled the ball dismissals before. There's obviously been a lot of 
Um, there's been uh, man cads where the bells have been taken off, and either there hasn't been an appeal or um, the the appeal was withdrawn. Uh, so yeah, it's not. I, I know. Look, it, if you're not an English person, I think it's fair to say that there is certainly uh there is certainly a bigger divide between english cricket fans and other cricket fans when it comes to this particular point uh it's certainly the way that it, cricket is taught in england and in other places it's not taught in that same way so i understand that divide but no there are plenty of other captains uh, who feel the exact same way um it's funny that you asked that roger because i'm sure that you would know about the ms Dhoni one with uh with ian bell so you know, those sorts of things um, certainly come up. And, and people outside of England talk about the spirit of the game. The problem with the spirit of cricket, right, is that it is used when you feel like you have been wronged or one of your players has made a mistake and the other team capitalized on it. It's very rarely used to actually better the game, right? The discussion about the spirit of cricket is used as a weapon to show that you're, you're a, a better, what? team than the opposition better morally than the opposition it's almost always complete and utter bullshit vivek says do the bigger international teams travel with their dietitians if so do they monitor the alcohol consumption of players regularly certainly not the english players uh and especially after emotionally draining games like lords no dietitians in my recollection don't spend a lot of time traveling around um they Quite often they might come out if it's if it's maybe it's a World Cup um, or a you know a big long series they might come out but I wouldn't think they'd ever be there for all five uh, tests or you know all two months of a World Cup but dietitians quite often get involved with the people who are making the food and so they do it from that perspective. Alcohol is very different. England used to have a rule where everyone had to be in bed by eleven o'clock at night or you know something along those lines. Um, other teams have rules about what day of the week you can drink or how much you can drink on certain days um from from that perspective i i would think that the the best way of sort of working out the alcohol consumption would probably be about dehydration and everything else anyway wouldn't it wouldn't that be an easy way of working it out um players would just lie <laughs> otherwise am i, am I? so I, I don't think they'll worry about it from that perspective um but yeah uh, dietitians are a part of the game I wouldn't think there would be that many professional sporting teams in the world that would travel with a dietitian. doesn't mean that they don't have a dietitian and that in some cases the dietitians wouldn't even be full-time. But I would doubt that they would travel with every game um, just because I don't think that's a, I don't think that's the best way of you know, managing your resources. I could be wrong. Patrick says, how do you think Todd Murphy will fare in the rest of the Ashes? Um, depending on the surfaces, he may not play in all the tests. I, I expect him to because I expect England to probably have more flat, lifeless pitches coming up. And so, you know, you expect the off spinner to play in that situation. But I wouldn't pencil him in for all three at the moment. I'd probably, well, maybe I would pencil. I wouldn't ink him in. I wouldn't paint his name on, on, team, on team sheets ahead of time. But yeah, I do think, I think he has all the tools to be successful. But this is a big step up from anything he's ever done before. Now, you could say the same um, of when he was playing in India. The difference in India is the conditions were in his favor and the conditions will not be in his favor this time. Uh, I've said this, that I think he's better than, or at least as good as Nathan Lyon at a similar age, but probably slightly better. So I think he's an incredibly talented player. So from that point of view, I'm not particularly worried. But this is completely alien to anything he's ever gone into before. But he seems like the sort of person who's just going to handle it, if we're being honest. Whether his bowling stands up to England coming at him is a, that, that I don't think anyone can answer. Um, I would veer towards that it's less likely to do that, but not impossible. Niran says, what do you think of the contrasting differences between the World Cup format and the qualifier format? Both have 10 teams, but the games are much more important than the qualifiers. For example, the moment the West Indies lost to Zimbabwe, the only way they could realistically qualify was to hope that Sri Lanka beat everyone else and the West Indies win all their remaining games. That one game carried so much weight. We do not see that in the World Cup format. Yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? So we don't. what we don't do in the World Cup qualifiers is go, you guys play as many games as possible so the best team will definitely make it through. Uh, or, or more likely than not make it through to the you know top four top two and then uh in the in the qualifiers but it's like good luck if you lose a game you might die um that is what the lower levels um of of cricket is like and the teams are used to it but it's a very fair point that you make i, I don't think that necessarily means you want the same kind of format from from that 
because I don't think you want 10 teams anyway, but you do make a valid point. And it's, you know, a lot of the things that we do to the associate teams, like not have DRS some years and um, play, the, play the tournaments in random places where the conditions are not going to mimic what the actual World Cup is going to be. We don't set the anyone up to succeed, and there is a lot of luck and who gets through to the the games. Um, you know, Zimbabwe is probably more than thinking at the moment. Uh, Ian says, "I know there have been a few contenders in recent years, but this is this, is this manner of West Indies World Cup exit a new low? I didn't expect them to qualify, but this has been shambolic. I don't think it's any lower, Ian, than what we saw in the last World Cup, I, and I know that wasn't." qualifiers as in they weren't off on their own but it was still like another qualifying tournament um so i don't think from that perspective this is any lower than that um maybe you could make an argument that in this case they lost to some teams who didn't have their full strength sides which probably wasn't the case in the last world cup i can't remember all the details off the top of my head so from that perspective maybe it's lower as in they lost against the worst team but the, no one saw no one would have saw this squad would have thought that they were you know, I, I think people like, you know, Santoki and Michelle and, and myself and anyone else, you know, people like Barrett who follow West Indies cricket quite c- closely, we thought they probably would struggle to qualify last time and that would probably would struggle to qualify this time. So in that way, I'm not sure that it's a new low. I think they're both fairly close to each other in, fer- in terms of lows. And when you look at the overall squads, I think, you know, it makes sense that maybe the, the squad is the low rather than the result. Because we, what what has happened here is pretty predictable, I would say. What have we got here? Christopher says, is it ironic to quote the spirit of the game but then completely act tribalistic? <laughs> I like that one. Um, I, I think, and I'm trying to remember if I have already done this in a podcast or if I did this on one of my mini TV hits uh, <laughs> that I went on recently. But I think there is a... You... <laughs> When you say we are the more moralistic ones and you will not deal, you will not live up to our morals and therefore you're no good. It's a weird place to start from, right? It's a weird place to start from. As in, we want you to act correctly and we're going to yell at you as long as possible until you act correctly. <clears throat> but I'm going to I'm going to take a, a step back, Christopher, and say this. Everyone has their own moral judgment, right? And everyone has a different way that they interact with the game, which is why the spirit of cricket doesn't work. But to just explain this, when I grew up, my dad would go absolutely nuts about the fact that you could bowl tail enders. Because remember in the 70s, it was just starting to come in. By the 80s, it was fairly common. And by the 90s, it was just a normal thing that you did in cricket. My dad couldn't understand why you would send out players you knew that couldn't do the job and then allow them to get hurt. Um, you know, when there are other ways of dismissing them. And, and I get his point, and I also get the other point, which is you've got a bat in your hand, that's now your job. You have to go and do it. But I find it absolutely hilarious that so many people are upset that Johnny Bairstow was legally stumped in this game, but are not concerned that Nathan Lyon on one leg was bounced and Jimmy Anderson was smashed in the face and that we had a bunch of tailenders who aren't good enough, who got hit or had to duck or all these sorts of things in the last two test matches. That just shows that these moral judgments change anyway, right? And they're always going to change. And we've seen that with man-catting. Man-catting is certainly a lot more socially acceptable now than it was 30 years ago. And maybe it will swing back. These things swing back as well. Maybe one day we'll be like, why were we letting tail enders get bound? Was when it's a Jerry Seinfeld murder. Um, what's the deal with tail enders? But, but I do think from that point of view that it changes anyway, right? You then add the patriotism, you know, to go back to the, you've got one side of, uh, of cricket going, oh, he definitely took that catch. What are you saying? He wasn't in control of his body, right? And then the next day, you've got a lot of people go, oh, yeah, maybe maybe legally it was out, but he wasn't getting an advantage. Oh, my God, people have got to stop using the advantage term as well. If I play a ball and I defend it into the offside, right, and I'm standing marginally out of my crease and I think I'm in the crease and I start to fiddle with my shirt and you run me out, I haven't taken an advantage. I'm not trying to take an advantage. I'm just out. My God, the advantage thing. But yeah, I think, sorry, Christopher, to almost get back to your question. I'm trying, I'm trying to get back to your question at least. Uh, yeah, it's, it's most, of the, most of the more full throttle um, uses of the spirit of cricket are done by people who are, seem to be really angry to begin with 
Um, and I'm pretty sure if you read the preamble to the spirit of cricket, it says be positive. So there you go. That's fun. Satchmo says, would England still be 2-0 down if they prepared semi pitches and batted more conservatively, especially in the hours after Lions injury? Uh, well, I think the way they batted after Lions injury, I do think was an issue. I don't think they needed to bat more conservative overall. I think, I mean, they've almost won two test matches. They've been in the games and they certainly knocked Australia off their kilter. I've got no problem with the going in with a strong game plan and backing it. Uh, the semi pitches one's really interesting though. So I was sitting next to Derek Pringle and we, we ha- you were know, having lots of good chats about the series so far. And I said to him, uh, this was when it looked like England were definitely going to go two d- nude down. And obviously they fought back a little bit to you know, almost steal that second match. But this is maybe day three, day four, when they were massively down. And I said, let's say they prepared the same pitch as we saw against South Africa. Do you think that England could, you know, w- it would it would reduce it to a little bit more of a messy series, but would actually give England the chance a bit, a little bit like what happened with Australia in India, where you know you if you make it that way, the the weaker team um, has more of a chance of winning. And we saw South Africa win a test against England, and I think he sort of agreed with me that that would be the way. But we both also thought that they they believed and that they were maybe not as good a team player by player, but they thought that their method and that their strategy would upset Australia to a point where they could get on top of them. And that they thought that if that was the case, the best way of doing it was playing to their strengths, which was, you know, scoring at five runs and over and everything else. Um, I don't think they expected England. I don't think England expected Australia to be so pragmatic, so level-headed, so calm, so defensive. All those different things are not really terms that you use for the Australian cricket team. You could tell, like, even between the tests, they were trying to goad Australia into being more aggressive and everything else. And it's, this is not the, this is not that Australian cricket team, right? And I, so I think from that perspective, um, there was definitely an issue that, that England had. But I think coming in, they would have just thought, flat pitches, we'll try and score as quickly as possible, put pressure on them other ways, um, and maybe we can work back from there. And that hasn't worked. But to be fair, I, I don't think I've ever seen a team be so much into contests and be down 2-0. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's another one that I'm not thinking of. But generally, you know, you might, you might, have, you might have a situation where you have a couple of good days and then you lose it. Te- I'm trying to remember the series I'm thinking about, but there was one series where there was one team that kept having like a good two or three days and then having one bad day and giving it away. That's kind of more how you would expect this to go. But actually, England have been pretty much in these games the majority of the times. Um, First test, they were marginally ahead most of the game. Second test, they were marginally behind um, a lot of the game. But there's not as much in it, I think, overall. Um, but then Australia are coming out on top. Which I still don't think it's impossible for England to come back and draw the series based on the cricket that both teams have played so far. I, I think it's unlikely from a mathematical point of view, as in that you know there would have to be a draw um, and two wins for England. I think that's unlikely from that perspective. But I don't think it's unlikely from the perspective of how they've both been playing cricket so far. Anyway, shall we take a break? Yes, we shall. You're listening to Wagon Wheel with Jared Kimber. And uh, here's a message from one of our sponsors. Breast milk science. It's a thing. And it's our thing. We're Byheart. We're an infant formula company on a mission to get a lot closer to the most super, super food on the planet. Breast milk. Our patented protein blend has more of the important and most abundant proteins found in breast milk. We're the first and only U.S.-made formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk, not skim. We make our formula in our own factories in Iowa, Oregon, and Pennsylvania, using a small batch manufacturing process that works to preserve the integrity of our ingredients. We ran the largest clinical trial by a new infant formula company in 25 years and clinically proved benefits like easier digestion, less gas, and softer poops versus a leading infant formula. We were the first infant formula company to earn the Clean Label Project Purity Award. And while we've put a lot into Byheart, there's a long list of things you won't see on our ingredient list. Like no corn syrup, no maltodextrin, no GMO ingredients, no soy, no palm oil. Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. All right, welcome back to Wagon Wheel. I'm still Jared Kimber. And we're still going through the Patreon questions like this one from Cam who says, how can something within the laws of the game be against the spirit of the game? Sounds like a contradiction in terms. Look, I think that if the laws were written by any other country uh, or were, let's say the ICC took them over 
or a independent committee took them over, whatever that may be. I do believe at a certain point that the spirit thing probably just gets erased. I do think that being at the Lord's ground of all places, you know, MCC members, they probably believe in that more than anyone else. Although where was the spirit of cricket when they were booing and calling everyone cheats when they hadn't cheated? I don't know, but I think they believe in that concept more than anywhere one else uh, as a, as a large group, you know, within cricket anyway. So I do think from that perspective that uh, if it was another part of cricket, I, I think it would be slightly different. I, I mean, I, and I may be wrong with that, but that that's always been my feeling with it. Um, and so once they wrote it into the preamble, it's silly. I, I don't know how many of you have actually read it, uh, but it's not, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think um, Katakea wrote the piece the other day and I was reading it at the same time, but I think he's got a piece up on Substack uh, where you can have, you know, see his um, uh, take on the preamble. And he's someone who loves the laws of cricket and so am I. I think the laws of cricket are fantastic. I love the way they evolve. I love the way they change. Um, but this is the preamble to the laws is the spirit of cricket, right? It says, cricket owes much of its appeal and enjoyment to the fact that it should be played not only according to laws, but also within the spirit of cricket. The major responsibility for ensuring fair play rests with the captains, but extends to all players, match officials, and especially in junior cricket, teacher, coaches, and parents. Then it's got a bunch of, like, dot points. Respect is central to the spirit of cricket. It didn't feel 100% like the Lords members were respecting the Australian team. Right now, we can understand that they were upset. They thought, I think, originally the idea was that the Australians had cheated or had done something wrong. Uh, after all that, it was more a spirit of cricket thing, but you see why they're upset. Respect your captain, your teammates, your opponents, and the authority of the umpires. I think we, we would say that the majority of players in the world at any one time would not do one of those things. <laughs> Probably multiple, right? So again, it's a bit silly. Uh, then you've got uh, play hard and play fair. This is one of my favorite ones because the phrase play hard means something so different, I think, in somewhere like Australia, perhaps somewhere like South Africa, than it would in some other countries. And, and I do think that it's interesting that that is in the spirit of cricket. Except the umpire's decision. That's a weird one just in a world of DRS. But in general, we do have dissent quite a lot. Um, and we've had dissent in this series so far. So there's more breaking of the spirit of cricket. This, this is the one I think I mentioned before. Create a positive atmosphere by your own conduct and encourage others to do likewise. I don't even know what that's in there, if I'm being honest. Um, I, I just I don't even know what that means <laughs> at a certain point. Anyway, show self-discipline even when things go against you. I, I think that's lovely, but that feels like it's written for 12-year-olds. Congratulate the opposition on their success and enjoy those of your own team. You would hope the second one goes without saying. Uh, the first one, yeah, I mean, most most teams, I'm not sure. They can, I suppose you do. You shake hands at the end, uh, which is actually another thing that's here. Thank the officials and opposition at the end of the match, whatever the result. So those two kind of go in. This is the one I find the most interesting. Cricket is an exciting game that encourages leadership, friendship, and teamwork, which brings together people from different nationalities, cultures, religions, especially when we're played within the spirit of cricket. Here's my problem with this. This is the one... That doesn't make any sense because what it's saying is we have different nationalities, different cultures, different religions, different genders you could throw in there as well, right? That all play this game. They all don't, dis they don't, those groups do not agree with each other about anything, right? People of different nationalities don't agree with each other. People with of the same nationality don't agree with anyone else. People of different cultures don't agree with, with each other. There's always going to be discrepancies within cultures and the way that people come up. People of different religions think that that's been proved quite a bit. So suddenly, we are going to expect them to understand the spirit of cricket when that is what it is. Like, I've just read the whole thing to you. What does it even mean? It's just gobbledygook. And if you think it's real... Write a better preamble. I remember Rob Smythe was writing a book about the spirit of cricket and he contacted me about it. And I said, it doesn't exist, Rob. I don't know what you would write. You know, he really struggled with that concept, which I think is more or less what the book probably ends up being. For me, the spirit of cricket is the fact that cricket is a magnificent game and that 
it grows and evolves and attaches itself to people and to nations, becomes part of nation building, becomes part of language, right? That it can be played by anyone with a stick and a ball, that it started as a street game, you know, a b- bunch amongst a bunch of people, that it moved and professionalism. And, you know, we tried to stop it with ball war and world wars and all these different things and apartheid, all these different things were thrown at it and, and whatever. And yet cricket keeps developing. It shouldn't be around. A game this old shouldn't still be so relevant. It shouldn't be such a major part of society. There are so many great things from the 16 and 1700s that I'm sure were huge back then that we don't even do anymore, right? And yet we do play cricket. That, for me, is the spirit of cricket, not bullshit moral code. Anyway. Cam says, is Ben Stokes a great player or a player of great moments? I think any all-rounder who can average high 30s with a bowling average in the low 30s on high usage, and and in his case, you know, batting top six most of his career, if not all of it now, uh, and his ability to take wickets with the old ball, just say, just on statistics alone, that he's an England great. I'm not sure he would go down as an all-time great, uh, but, you know, the captaincy and the fielding, you keep throwing different parts in uh, in test cricket, you know, and he is a magnificent player. There's absolutely no doubt of that. He's a player of great moments, but I think his skill set. Now, how much of this is this is what England needed and so became it, and how much of this is natural for him? But his two skill sets, essentially, in batting and bowling, are really interesting. His skill set in batting is that he's at his absolute best when the options are narrowed to just one or two paths. Right? Whereas the great batters, you know, Sachin, Root, Hobbs, Headley, you listen to all the stories about these guys, and in any situation, their ability to get the most out of themselves is why they ended up with incredible records. Ben Stokes doesn't have that. When his options are narrowed to just one, two, three different places, or even going between those three different things, suddenly he's very good. That's generally what happens at the end of very close games. <laughs> Right at that stage, you're playing the conditions and the match situation, and it makes it much easier on him. If you go across to his bowling, I think his best skill with bowling is his ability to. He's not very good at line and length, and he's not very good at controlling the ball, but he's very good with an old ball because it doesn't do as much out of his hand, so he it doesn't lose it as it goes down the wicket. That's why he doesn't bowl with a brand new ball because he, he does struggle with a brand new ball. So he's good with the old ball, and then because of that, he spent a lot of time bowling with the old ball, and a bit like Neil Wagner, he just designs his own methods of bowling with the old ball, which means he's a very good person for taking wickets out of nowhere because of the technical aspects. Now, because of the two things I've said, and because of what they are, it's like, oh, he's the sort of guy that makes things happen, and he's the sort of guy that's great at the end of the game, but there's a lot of technical reasons why he's good at these parts of the game. He's a fascinating cricketer from that point of view. HW341 says, what is the strongest first-class competition in the world right now? What, are the, what is the main reason why domestic first-class cricket has not maintained its popularity in the way that club soccer and rugby has? Uh, club soccer and rugby is played in prime time on weekends. Uh, I think that's the main reason, if we're being honest. And then you don't get to see the majority of first-class cricket. There's no way to actually follow it. Uh, it was only probably... Actually, that's not fair. I think in most places, first-class cricket was popular at different times. But a lot of the times when first-class cricket was popular, it was before test cricket was popular. Uh, Rugby and soccer don't have the amount of international games that cricket has. So there's a huge difference there. But I do think the weekend stuff and the primetime stuff plays a big part in it. Um, I think it holds back test cricket at times as well. I think it holds back golf in a certain way. But the difference is, the, those, uh, you know, whether it be the PGA or, you know, Test Cricket, they are seen as the pinnacle. So it eventually comes back, if that makes sense. It, it, you know, it, it, uh, uh, it has something else going for it. And I don't think first-class cricket does. I think it's seen as the second, um, you know, the second best thing. And then once you had one-day cricket, it's the third best thing. And once you have T20 cricket, it's the fourth or fifth best thing, right? Just keeps moving down. Uh, strongest first-class competition in the world. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, is maybe the best answer. Um, we, I wouldn't even think now. It used to be easier when the players used to travel around a little bit more. The top players used to travel around. You could get a really good idea. I remember, you know, David Hussey averaging forty-five in the Shield and and sixty-five in first class in county cricket gave you an idea that there was a big difference between them. Um, but I don't. I just. It's not even a question I think about that much uh, anymore. HW. 
Ben says, is cricket's reliance on private schools cast class a long-term issue for the growth of the game? Well, it's been a long-term issue in the growth of the game. So if you think the game has gone anywhere so far, Ben, it's worth noting that it's always been there. Um, You know, it's been there in Pakistan, in Sri Lanka, in India, in South Africa, in New Zealand, in England. I think less so West Indies and Australia. Um, I want to say Ireland, even Scotland have issues with this as well. Um, so, yeah, look, it's always been there and it will always be there. I do think as more money comes into the game in any sport, I think there is a a widening of the talent pool. But generally what happens, you look at American sports or you look at academies and football, is that you know those, the, the, those people just get sucked into those systems anyway. Um, but yeah, I do think as more money comes into the sport, then it's harder to just, it's harder to just be good at it because you went to a private school with good facilities, because if all the best athletes in the world, uh, have a chance of playing cricket, then that is going to democratize it maybe a little bit more. Um, but yes, it's, it has always been an issue. It is an issue now, and I expect it to be an issue into the future, sadly. Bobby Yo says, one of the many media explanations for England's defeat in the first test was poor play behind the stumps for Besto. Was his performance that bad in the first test, or was it overstated? How was it compared to his keeping in the second test? There was a point in the second test where a friend of mine sent me a message going, I think Besto has fumbled 15 balls. He didn't drop as many catches. He missed a lot of simple takes in the second test. And generally, the thing is that people don't really remember the normal fumbles as much as they remember the drop. So I'm not sure he's wicket keeping improved. I, I don't think I could be wrong on this, and it, but it wouldn't surprise me. I feel like England made a decision to move back to him without having seen him wicket keep, uh, done any wicket keeping since he broke his leg. It could be wrong. But I'm not sure how much wicket-keeping they would have spent watching him. I think if they saw the level he's wicket-keeping at the moment, it would be really interesting to know if they would have still made that decision. Maybe they would have. Um, uh, I think, uh, Bobby, the best way of explaining it is, I think it played a factor in the first test. I don't think his wicket-keeping particularly improved in the second test either. Um, One thing I would say, though, is, you know, the Ben Folks crowd, don't get me wrong, I'm kind of Ben Folks crowd, right? Because I think the best we can keep is should be picked regardless. And I, I'm hoping one day analytics will prove me right, but we're not quite there yet. But I'm kind of that Ben Folks crowd. But one thing I would say is, if Besto isn't particularly fit, and it looks like he's not moving very well with his feet, and he wasn't a particularly good mover with his feet beforehand as a wicketkeeper, um, then he's probably looking worse than he actually is, if that makes sense. So it's a bit like picking a bowl up with an injury and then going, oh, he doesn't have that zip off the pitch. You know, we, we should have picked someone else. Yes, you, sh- you should have. But that doesn't mean that that guy's never going to be a good bowler again. Ditcher says, body line was designed specifically to keep Bradman in check. Can you recall any other instance of cricket where in a team designed strategy, keeping only one player in mind? Uh, or for that matter... Are there any instances in any other team sports where a strategy was designed uh, keeping only one player in mind? Um, yeah, so the most famous one ever is, uh, well, maybe not the most famous. I think it was like an early uh, incredible moment in sport was when George Mikan was playing in the NBA and he was about a foot taller than every other player in the NBA. You know, and because of that, there was no kind of way that you could play him normally. And so there was a basketball game where I, 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 I might get the score wrong, but I believe it was 16 points to 18. <laughs> so it was almost more played like a soccer game or a football match. Remarkable. Uh, and that our whole idea was that the less time they spent getting the ball anywhere near George Mikan or giving the ball back to George Mikan, um, the better, right, fr- from that perspective. So that was one of the most remarkable sort of early moments in sporting history when you know strategy completely took over as beforehand i think teams just played a little bit more um so that one certainly comes to mind from other sports um i'm sure there's probably some good football ones i'm trying to you know think of uh some other other particular ones in team sports that i can think of nothing else comes to mind but i'm there are definitely quite a few that target one player or you know try and limit one player the thing about Bradman was that they didn't actually need to do it to the other players. As in, 
if if it was it was designed just for Bradman, but if it was just a Bradman plan, they wouldn't have done it to the other players. They actually thought it was a very good strategy for all players, as it turned out to be. So it wasn't just a Bradman thing. I think that is a that is one thing that is worth remembering from that. Uh, I'd have to go back, but I've got a feeling there's a tour where India decided not to score any runs off Glenn McGrath. Uh, no, not a tour. Uh, sorry, a home series for India. Um, so we've certainly seen bowlers treated differently at times, uh, you know, for a similar kind of reason. Um, so that's probably more extreme. Um, there's been heaps of strategy for batters, but it doesn't usually bleed over to the other players, right? I'm trying to think if anyone's ever created a pitch that was so bad just to nullify a single player. Hmm. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but that would seem to be another one. If you went in, with a player who's absolutely brilliant, uh, you know, against seam bowling, you know, maybe you would put a spin wicket only, but I can't think of anything. But the Glenn McGrath one is really strong in my mind. Um, I think that's right. Um, and that was, you know, India's way of sort of trying to take McGrath out of that series or make him, you know, have him limited a little bit more like Bradman in that series, uh, which is quite an extreme way of playing test cricket, really. Peter Delapena says, Dear sir, I am an all-rounder looking for a new job. I can take photographs of the cricket, film videos, and also write and communicate. Also, I like using arrows to point things out that happen in cricket. I can send you pieces of my work, willing to travel anywhere to cover cricket, except South Africa. Please, can you help me find a job? So why are we not allowed to go to South Africa? They got the He loves burgers. They've got the biggest burgers there ever. Yeah, PDP left... Um, I don't know why he's messaging on Patreon. PDP uh, left... Uh, Crick info this week in the in the latest layoffs. Um, I think he's had one of the more remarkable careers in cricket writing. You know, thirteen years of writing about American and associate cricket, but for the biggest cricket platform at a time when Crick info didn't have a West Indies correspondent, a New Zealand correspondent, a time to Pakistan correspondent. I want to say, did they ever not have a Pakistan correspondent? Maybe briefly. Um, certainly didn't always have a Bangladesh correspondent. You know, had an Irish correspondent. Don't I think you could argue they never had a full-time woman's correspondent as well. Um, and yet this guy traveled around the world doing associate cricket, only eating at five guys, which I think is almost physically impossible. Not, not that five guys isn't good. Um, but I, yeah, you know, I remember when he sort of first came up, I, he used to comment on, on cricket with balls. It's a remarkable career. I hope he has the ability to continue and, um, He's you know, as a journalist, it's a it can be a tough gig sometimes uh, to like like I think of the level of fame and notoriety he has within the associate world. I, I think they, he should be able to get a cushy job with with the team somewhere, um, but he probably won't be able to get that because of all the articles he's written. So it's it's quite an interesting one from that point of view. But I have nothing re- but respect for Peter Delapena, unless this isn't Peter Delapena, it's just some other dude pretending to be Peter Delapena. And then I have nothing but respect for the guy pretending to be Peter Delapena. James says, Josh Chung is one of the very few international level pace bowlers I've seen with an arm slot past the perpendicular. Uh, or 11 o'clock, if you like. Nathan Bracken is another. I'm struggling to think of any more. Um, uh, Mike Proctor is one that James mentions. Was Colin Croft one? Micaiah and Teeny one? Um... Yeah, it's not particularly common. You sometimes see finger spinners do it. And it's really weird with finger spin because if you do it with finger spin, the ball goes in to in rather than out to in. So if you're listening at home and you can't see my fingers, I'll explain this. If you're watching on the YouTube and my fingers don't make any sense, I'll try and explain this. But basically off spin, when you put revolutions on the ball, uh, it drifts away from the right hander and spins back in. But if you go past the perpendicular, it actually drifts into the... Uh, right-hander sometimes, and then spins in. So Dom Best bowled into him. Um, and uh, uh, Himanish w- uh, put some tweets up about this recently. I think he thought it was a, a something that spinners didn't know about, but it is something that old spinners talk about quite a bit. By old, I mean Gareth Batty. But I've heard, I think I've heard Ashwin talk about it as well. Um, so yeah, with seam bowlers, those are the ones off the top of my head. that, And, and I'm trying to think of the way that they bowled rather than their actual arm position in that. But that would make sense. It's not a very common thing. But what we are seeing now is the sort of peculiarities uh, of bowling actions is being... I think people are starting to work out that these are features, not bugs, 
sometimes, whereas I think beforehand it would have been thought of the opposite. But now we have the ability to go through with analysis and everything and have a look. But, you know, I wrote about Josh Tung when he first bowled. If James Harry haven't seen the piece, go and have a look. I thought that was a very, very interesting thing. In the same way that I think in the old days, they didn't always like bowlers coming wider on the wicket. Whereas now that's almost being encouraged in, you know, these weirder, different kinds of bowling angles and attacks are very, very good. James says, do you think the current situation of the members being so close to the players in the long room at Lords will remain in place? And was the situation in this test truly an isolated incident or a sign that times are changing? The one thing I would say is that this was a slightly different Lords crowd than you would see generally just because it was a fifth day. So the entire Lords crowd was probably a little bit less Lordsy than you would normally have because the tickets were cheap. 25 quid, which is still pretty expensive for pretty much most of the cricket world, but certainly quite cheap for a fifth day. Uh, oh, quite cheap for a for a um, England Test match. Uh, maybe a little bit expensive for, still for a fifth day in England. But so I do think that played part of it and part of the atmosphere. I don't think it's going to change with the Lord's Long Room and everything else. There are plenty of other places in the world where players have to go. You know, it, it, so at the Oval you have to walk up. Um, you know, through the crowd. The SCG you have to walk up through the crowd. Trying to think of some other grounds where it happens. Uh, Wanderers has that weird plastic. Is it Wanderers? Yeah, Wanderers has that weird plastic thing over the players that we saw Ben Stokes um, stop and abuse someone when they called him Ed, Ed Sheeran. And uh, we've certainly seen plenty of places around the world where the players have to walk up next to crowds. Lords is not the only one. Lords is different because you are walking through the. It's not a, it's not just a seated area, whereas I think most other places it is a bit more seated. So there's people standing and, and everything else, and they have to be roped off and uh, from that perspective. But it, yeah, it is a little bit different from that. But I wouldn't think this would change it. Um, I'd be kind of shocked if it did. On, honestly, James Aditya says, "What is the funniest thing you have seen in a professional cricket match?" Oh my god, there's just a lifetime of cricket coming up. Uh, in front of my face. The funniest thing I've seen in a professional cricket match. It, this is not the funniest, but I remember this story, and it's the best I've got for you, Aditya, now, was, uh, I, f- I forget how you pronounce his name, but the Scottish player, Matt Macken, or Matt Machen, uh, Machan, um, played for Sussex as well, retired really early, was a very talented player, it was a real shame. But I remember seeing him at a World Cup game in Hobart. I think they were playing in Sri Lanka. And he, he, I think he hit a couple of boundaries and then was dismissed. And you could see it was just forlorn that he'd gone out. And as he's coming off the ground, the camera operator's got the camera on him. We've all seen this shot a million times, you know, the close-up of disappointed player. And Matt just ran around him. <laughs> and at the time I was like, because you're never quite sure when you write those things. Because my obvious thought was, he doesn't want the camera in his face. And I've never seen a player be that dramatic with it. And then I thought, oh, he might have, you know, there might have been a million reasons. He just wanted to get off the field, whatever. And I said to him afterwards, you know, why'd you do that? He goes, no, no, I, want, I didn't want the camera in my face. <laughs> I still remember how funny that was. And I felt like I was the only person that saw it. And I think it's quite often it's those little things where you're like the only person at the ground to see it. that are, it's fun. And you can't even, like, unless you saw what I'm talking about, it wouldn't look as ridiculous to you. But I've seen a lot of funny things at Green Grounds. Uh, Neon says, what does, quali- uh, what does not qualifying for Shy Hope's career mean? Doesn't play either format at the moment. I, I don't know. Um, I think Shy Hope's going through a period in his career where he's trying to embrace where the modern world's going. I don't think the way that West Indies cricket has been played, we would ever say he'll never play test cricket again. Uh, pardon me. So there's always a test chance. I don't think he'll play any more T20 cricket for the West Indies, um, but I think he's a chance that. But it's it's a fair question, right? What does he do? Uh, perhaps does he play as an overseas in county cricket? Is he good enough to be thought of as that? I, I don't know. He's you know he's made incredible scores in England, but maybe not consistently. Um, it's a really good question, but I'm not sure I have the best answer for that. Um, but I do think this might force him to reevaluate the way he's played. And I mean that more from a point of view of if they're not going to play top-level one-day cricket, is it worth him going off and working on his test game a little bit more or just T20 game? Uh, thank you to everyone for, on Patreon. Remember, if you support us on Patreon, you can ask these questions up first. Uh, we will take another break. And then after the break, I'll get to the comments in the chat on YouTube. 
You're listening to Wagon Wheel. I am and will remain Jared Kimber. Bob says, do you think the different crowd is a bit of a, cl- a classist take? It was also the long room we were yelling. No, definitely it was the long room that was yelling, Bob. I don't disagree with that at all. Uh, it's not a classist take. I cover cricket at Lords all the time. We, I mean, every time I'm in the tube with another cricket writer, we always play the same game, Lords or not Lords, right? And for the first four days of Lords test matches, you're about 87% sure who's going to Lords. And it's not because they're wearing cricket shirts, right? Because they've got a telegraph under their arm and beige um, shorts and, you know, check shirts and everything else. We have seen the most fun. I mean, you, it's interesting that you say that as a classist take, because I, I would actually say that the crowds on the fifth days at Lords are the best cl- crowds. Um, because at times there is a, uh, a dullness to Lords crowds compared to other cricket crowds. Like it's not one of my favorite grounds, Bob. I don't enjoy going there particularly that much. Um, it's my third favorite ground in London. Maybe my fourth. I don't know. Um, but so, but it is a very different crowd on day five. I don't think if the same thing had happened on day three, uh, the chanting would have been the same. And the whole ground was whipped up. Now, it's very. It's not the first time that members have been upset with people and with players and have started issues. And any crowd member, regardless of their cultural background, would do that. But generally, Lords doesn't boo. Generally, Lords is not... Um, that kind of place. And I do think the fifth day thing helped. I mean, I was asked about this even before the Bearstow thing. Uh, one of the Australian journalists came over to me and said, is Lords usually like this? Because <laughs> I think it was maybe, you know, one of the earlier times they'd been. And I said, no. And I had to explain the fifth day thing to them. So it is a different crowd. You most, a lot of cricket grounds in the world are a little bit like this. The other thing that you notice, Bob, for fifth days, especially in England, you find this in other places, quite often, um, the fifth day has a lot of young people in it. And that's another thing that I've noticed a lot uh, when England crowds have that, and a lot more families as well at times. But it's not your normal Lord's crowd. It would be it would be lying to pretend that it was. But you're also right that it was the long room um, who were yelling. I don't think the long room wasn't upset. Um, but I don't think it was the long room involved in the chance, for instance. Well, I should say. The majority of the chants in, in any cricket ground you're in in the world, the majority of the chants don't usually come from the oldest members, right? And Lords has a lot of old members, so it's probably less likely to come from there. I don't know how I can make a class mistake. I'm literally one of the most. <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to get into that. A uh, lo- lot of great um, super chats here. So thank you very much to Roy. Uh, what's your thoughts on Bangladesh's chance to qualify for the World Cup semi final? Didn't you ask this last week, Roy? Or did someone else ask this last week um, or recently? I, I think they've got a good chance. I, I haven't. It's the sort of question that I would need to go through like every team in the World Cup. I'd need to, and not all of them are qualified yet. I'd need to go through where they are playing their games, you know, have a look at everyone else. We haven't seen all the teams play that much one day cricket yet. Um, it, I can never give you a proper answer on this because if you wanted me to give you a proper answer on it, it would take me like two hours. Right. So. I think they are a very interesting team. We've obviously done, you know, a few clips, uh, you know, podcasts and maybe some videos on why I think they're interesting and how they're interesting. I think they're a fascinating team coming in. Um, I think they, I mean, Bangladesh and India are slightly different versions of Asian conditions, but there is obviously an overlap there, and that should help a little bit as well. Um, if I was a Bangladesh fan, I w- I would be cautiously optimistic i don't think i'd be like we're going to make the semi-finals but i I think i've said before that i think their best chance i think their best case scenario no best case is wrong best case scenario is slipping into the semi-finals i think they should be more than happy if they're in the semi-final conversation i think they you know i i'd be really happy if i was working with them and they made it uh you know just into that conversation uh if they can make it in that's that's even better Ikant says, how do TV production companies plan and handle uh, to balance uh, between a ball-by-ball and colour comms? While the reporting bit uh, needs less detailing than written radio stuff, though, I feel it's under design, uh, underdone at times. Is it by design? How does the TV production teams plan and handle the balance? Um, well, I, it, it's a tricky one, Ikant, and thanks for your super chat as well. But it, it's, a, it's a tricky one, and I'll tell you why it's tricky. They they want to allow cricket fans to see what's happening and make up their own mind. So some, as something as simple as, you know, Mel Jones said, 
I think recently that lights are coming on and that's of course because it's getting dark. She's explaining that more to cricket, uh, casual cricket fans. I know everyone understands what lights mean coming on, but what she's trying to say to those who don't understand, that's why we're showing you the lights. It's got dark, right? She obviously phrased it in the wrong way, but that is the problem. And I've never worked in TV cricket coverage, so I've never been trained in this. But I think one of the bigger problems is it's that it's it's the middle ground between saying what you see on the screen and also still educating people and everywhere else. And I think that is tougher on TV than than anywhere else. Having said that, other sports seem to do it slightly better than cricket. What I would say is the cricket is massively missing out on non-player commentators. People who have the ability to understand what people who haven't played cricket need to hear. People who are broadcasters first and cricket people second. All these sorts of things I think are massively important and are missed in cricket. And I still don't understand the idea of needing famous former players as commentators without them also being brilliant commentators or broadcasters. And some of them are. But in general, I don't understand that theory. And I've always said the same. If, if, I'm a, if I'm a fan and I'm at home and there's a bunch of sports on, I don't, and I turn on the basketball, I don't go, oh, great, you know, Stan Van Gundy's on, or Jeff Van Gundy, or all the Van Gundys. Uh, I, I'm a commentator. That will make this game more enjoyable to me. I'll definitely watch now. And if I'm thinking, oh, I might watch the golf or I might watch the cricket. Well, Ian Botham's going to be commentating the cricket and Ian Baker Finch might be on the golf. Well, I'll go with the cricket. It doesn't, it doesn't follow. And I do think there's a huge, and, and yet I talk to people in, in sport um, productions all the time and their bosses just want famous people, famous people, famous people. Um, and I've never truly understood it. I think that realistically going out there, getting the best broadcasters, making them professional and doing everything else, maybe we'll fix some of the issues that you're talking about a little bit more. Um, but, but yeah, I do think that TV is a slightly different medium, certainly than writing and radio. And, and I haven't done TV, so I'm not an expert in this ecos. But I would say it's very, very different in what you need to tell people. You know, the radio is actually, I think a lot of TV commentators find the radio quite freeing because they feel like they can talk, right? They feel like they don't have to check themselves. They don't have to let the pitchers do the, the telling. They're not being, they're never being obvious because they have to say the thing because otherwise no one will see it. Um, so it is a very, very different medium, I think, from that point of view. Keshav says, thoughts on Zimbabwe choking? Uh, who are you back in Scotland versus Netherlands? I didn't think Zimbabwe choked. I thought that Lisk and uh, Mark Watt did brilliantly at the end of their innings and played really, really good cricket. And then Chris Sol just took the soul out of Zimbabwe. We need we need a cricket sound for that one. Not not sport, actual bug. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. Um, yeah, I thought Scotland played brilliantly. I, I, I wasn't sitting there going, oh, Zimbabwe have choked. I just, you know, and to be honest, they pulled it back. Ryan Burl's innings was fantastic. Uh, was it Wesley as well? I think did really, really well um, pulling them all the way back. But, you know, they, they lost too many wickets early on. Um, and then all Scotland had to do was chip away. And Scotland has got a lot of very good players who are good, you know, uh, at chipping away from that perspective. Uh, I thought they played brilliantly, Scotland, after really struggling in the first 40 overs. It was an incredible turnaround over the next, 50 overs, 10 with the bat and, and 40 with the ball. Um, uh, I know there's some Zimbabwean fans who are upset that they probably were too reckless, maybe with the bat in this game and I think the Sri Lanka game. But that's also what Zimbabwe has built their momentum on. It's a little bit like the, the baseball theory, right? Of like, oh, now you're losing, so it's no good. But it's like, well, you were winning and everyone was really happy. Sometimes, it, you know, it, it does get a, a little bit tricky when you think about things from that perspective. Uh who else have we got here? Cameron says, uh, my favorite Major League Cricket roster. Oh, I'm not going to be able to help you there, Cameron. I was obviously uh, involved briefly in the draft process, but that was in the American players. Um, I can probably tell you more about the American players than I could uh, the overseas. I, I just haven't focused my brain on, on that tournament yet. I'm sure I will watch it. It probably will be in a decent time zone. It will be maybe too late here. Might be a little bit late, but it might be the sort of thing that I you know, watch late at night um, a little bit before I go to bed. I'm certainly interested in how the entire tournament goes, uh, from the planning to you know the fans and everything else. But I'll be honest, from uh, when, it, when a tournament starts, I'll probably have a look a little bit more at the rosters. But at this stage, um, I'm a little bit distant from, from Major League Cricket um, 
in, in the way that it's been run. Just, just, I mean, today I had two days off in this test uh, from this uh, test uh, match before I have to go up to Headingley. And uh, I spent one whole day doing TV hits, uh, talking about the spirit of cricket. Um, and then the next day I had Scotland versus Zimbabwe, you know, really important game. Major League Cricket is like the step out, like India playing the West Indies yet. And I couldn't tell you, uh, you know, <laughs> what, what squads either team has just because I need to get there. And I know it's very close and I'm sure I'll work it out when I do, but that's kind of how I feel about Major League Cricket and kind of everything. Um, what else have we got here? Uh, a couple more and then we'll finish up. Have I already done this one? DM says, is there another sport in the world that has clear-cut laws that players aren't supposed to enforce? Timed out, handled the ball, obstructed in the field, best no runner. So timed out, I think that was more there just to make sure that the game was sped up. I think it comes in in 1980. Um, and you don't want to be in a position where teams are tactically taking time out of the game. And I think it made sense. But, you know, if someone's got stuck on the toilet or uh, what was the Surab Ganguly one in Tendulkar where they got confused? Um, I'm trying to think of some of the others. Like in those situations, I think it's fair. We, we had one at St. Lucia, I think, where KS Ahmed was supposed to go out and bat and he was on the toilet um, and didn't realize he was batting next anyway. I'm not even sure he was batted up. He might have been batted up. Um, wicket goes. There's like a two-minute break and we suddenly realize KS is not around. Uh, Darren Sammy then has to run down, but it was at Sabina Park, and obviously he had bad knees, well, probably still has bad knees, he had to run down the stairs. There's no way he shouldn't have been timed out. But I don't think the opposite, you know, I don't think the opposition was particularly worried about that. Uh, but it's an interesting one. Obst- uh, handled the ball. Uh, I-, I find that really interesting because in modern cricket, and I'm not sure this has always been the case, but it could have been. A lot of times players pick up the ball when it's reverse swinging on purpose to get it sweaty, so it stops reverse swinging. And I think if you were to appeal for that, you would be seen as you know a dodgy team. But actually, the opposition is sort of using the spirit of cricket to game the laws uh, in in that situation, right? Or to to game the game. I think that works. Um, so it's a really really interesting one. Uh, abstracting the field. Um, I don't know if spirit of cricket. Uh, I, the only times there's there's a famous one with um, Brendan Julian. Uh, runs into Sherwin Campbell. I think it was Sherwin Campbell. I think it was Brendan Julian in the West Indies when he quite clearly goes out of his way to get into his way, knocks him over, and then runs him out. And the umpires gave it out. And um, I suppose that's not completely obstructing the field. but uh, And that was withdrawn after I think there was potential riots were going to happen. But when you go back and have a look at it, that uh, the, you know, what Julian did then, shouldn't shouldn't have been that shouldn't have been given out he went out of his way to get in the way um obstructing the field is what you asked though isn't it um i don't think the spirit of cricket gets too involved with obstructing the field does it i can't think of any uh best i run out or stumping man cads and everything else uh yeah i think it's fair to make the point that you've made in this in this one and which says, what is the greatest team produced by the subcontinent? Talking about one particular era, like Australia 2000 or West Indies 1980. I suppose some of the recent India teams would be up there. And I probably, what, Pakistan in late 80s, mid 80s, would might be another one that might not be far off. Um, you probably want Imran Khan still to be useful enough. Javed Mindad to still be in the team, but with, a, you know, uh, with Wakar and Wazim. Maybe Abdul Qadir or Mushtaq Ahmed, those sorts of periods is a fantastic team. But I'm not sure the batting and the bowling completely overlaps. I'd have to go back through it a little bit closer. I don't think we've ever seen Sri Lanka have great four bowlers. You know, like a top bowling attack. You know, Vas and Murali were incredible. Who's the third best bowler consistently in that position? And who's the fourth best? I mean, if Harass had played with Murali, which now looking back on it, <laughs> probably... Uh, would have been remarkable. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't think um, anything. Uh, ODIs, uh, my, my, bra- my brain can't even move to ODIs today. That's a, a perfectly reasonable question, but I, I don't think I can do that one. Um, I, I want to get this one by Shrinkant, uh, who says, your thoughts on these two parallels? In my view, both Mark Waugh and Bell perhaps deserve to be out more than Bearstow. Waugh's hit wicket was induced by a good short ball and Bell wrongly assumed a boundary. See, I don't think it's a case of someone being deserving to go out more. I think it's a case of, is that person out? And I think in all three of those cases, 
I would think now my view would be that or I can't remember what I thought about Mark War because that was a million years ago. Ian Bell, very, very pro that he should have been run out. Still disappointed in Donny for that one. Um, and uh, yeah, best of us out. Uh, let's have a look. I've already done Cameron, haven't I? And well, one last uh, super chat here uh, from Shunak. She's on the good work, Jared. She's on the super chat, Shunak. Why do we bring back why do we not bring back benefit of the doubt goes to the batsman and get rid of spirit of cricket? Has benefit of the doubt to the bat uh, ever been in the laws? Should I? Uh, the spirit favors batters anyway. Never seen a batter not score um, if a bowler has slipped. Yeah, I mean, they did bring in the law that, remember, you used, if you used to bowl the ball off the pitch, you could run over and whack it and all those sorts of things. They did bring in laws to stop that, interestingly enough. Um, but yes, you got to. it's funny how the spirit of, um, cricket seems to favor batters uh, more than bowlers almost like it's class-based uh, to go back to bob's uh question from a moment earlier but um yeah i think i think i don't i, I could be wrong but i don't think the benefit of the doubt to the bat has ever been in there anyway and i that wouldn't i'm not sure how that would work in the bearstow situation so what do you? What's the benefit of the doubt in that situation? That he thought he heard overcalled, that he thought he saw Alex Carey throw the ball off to a fielder. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm not sure that that would specifically work, but I understand your your general point there. Anyway, huge thanks to everyone. Uh, website uh, with the YouTube's been pumping. As I said, go over to Jared Kid, uh, Jared Kid, Jared Kimber podcasts. We put all the links out to that on on YouTube, um, so you can find the the links to the YouTube channel there and subscribe. It really does help us out. And eventually all of these chats will be over there. So if you want to keep asking questions and being involved, that is the only place to go. Uh, but uh, thank you to everyone who just put any, any questions in. I saw that the um, chat was bumping again. Um, oh, I just want to get on Bob's thing where he's saying uh, he wasn't calling me cl uh, classes. He just heard a similar take with Andrew Strauss called a different crowd. I, I, when we say it's a different crowd, I think we, well, actually, I won't speak for Andrew Strauss. I have no idea what he means. I mean, it's more of a cricket crowd. I don't always think that Lords and um, the Oval specifically are cricket crowds. And there's a couple of different reasons for that. Lords is a lot of members who perhaps don't follow cricket all that closely. And a lot of people who come because it's Lords and it's an event. The Oval seems... Every time I've ever sat in the outer of the Oval, it's been a bunch of people around me who don't know anything about cricket, whose work has paid for it, or, um, uh, you know, I've had the dumbest cricket conversations I've ever had in cricket have been at the Oval. Um, and so I do think um, from that perspective, um, I, I do think in that from that perspective that when you have the fifth day at the Oval or the fifth day at Lords, you get more cricket fans in. And when I say different crowd, that's kind of, also what i mean i think it's younger um there probably is a class base to it as well because the tickets are way cheaper like phenomenally cheaper um uh and um so it is it is completely different and i don't think you can ignore that uh bob I, you know and look me and strassi might come up from different points maybe he did meet in the class way i i don't know i don't know strassi well enough to to be able to um you know make any calls on that but you know from my perspective I think I said that the best crowd I ever uh, saw at Lords, uh, outside of maybe some women's games, you know, women's World Cup final, was uh, the, when this, uh, India were playing and Sachin was batting on day five. Um, and so I, I think that those sorts of crowds at Lords, I've always enjoyed a lot more. But I would say this in general: almost every fifth day crowd in England, and England's one of the last places in, on the earth where people actually come for the fifth day. But almost every ground in England, I've usually enjoyed the fifth day crowds far more. You have less, um, you know, bucks or stags dues. You have less corporate tickets. You have less people who enjoy the culture of cricket, but not really the cricket. You have less people coming to drink because they usually, if they're coming on day five, they're there because it's a good day five. Rarely when we get a good crowd on a day five in Australia, it's exactly the same. Um, so I do think uh, that it is very, very different. Um, in many different ways, uh, and and it was. If I, I don't know how this played out on the TV, but if you're in the ground and you've ever been in the ground at Lords before, you couldn't have said that that felt like a normal Lords crowd. It just didn't, and it didn't on the tube ride on the way in. 
that's when you start to notice it with Lords. It's always on the tube on the way in. Uh, I, you know, I don't want to say I count the number of telegraphs um, under people's arms, but sometimes I count the number of telegraph newspapers under people's arms. Anyway, thank you to everyone. I see the chat is still jumping around, uh, but I'm going to have to uh, finish up here. I've got a pack to go to Headingly as much as anything. Uh, Please support us. Go over to Jared Kimber Podcast. Subscribe over there. Remember, you can listen to the podcast uh, you know, almost every day of the week through the normal podcast feed. If you want to support us on Patreon, you can. But huge thanks to, who do we have today? Uh, Shonak, um, oh my God, Cameron, Keshuv, Ekant, and someone else. Roy. Uh, for their super chats as well uh you know really all these sort of things help us we're we're getting more and more people involved obviously you've seen um bayram has been doing some hosting at barat once i get him back to australia we'll probably come back on the podcast more regularly as well uh but we got cs chawanza who's helping me out with those who got cheyenne um helping us out as well you know your money goes towards it me being able to you know hire these people um as much as anything and we can make more content and big video coming out tomorrow i say big video coming out tomorrow it may kill muku this video but if it doesn't kill muku there's a big video coming out tomorrow so i uh, check out the main youtube page for that and i will see you again uh when will i see you again when's my next live it's probably monday i'll see you again probably monday for the next episode of uh uncovered but bye for now and thank you very much for all your support. Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon, where there are many other extras as well, including a Discord channel. There's a link to those in the show notes. Please review, subscribe, and tell all your friends about our show. Word of mouth is the best way of making our podcast grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber, and this is my network. But we also have hosts and co-hosts like Barat Sundaresan and Bayram Kazi. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston. Each episode is produced by Ishit Kuberka at Sound Potion Studio. The team from 42 help us out with the video side. Orijoti Sainapayi and Maida Akam, both producing podcasts, while Mukunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube content. Podcast Network.